I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I'm so glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, but before we do, let's give ourselves some time to recenter. Try some visual breathing. Imagine there's a little ball of light in your tummy. It can be any color or size you wish. Now inhale and watch that light glow brighter, illuminating your whole torso. Now exhale and see it grow dimmer again. Each time you breathe in, feel that warmth and see how much of your body you can light up. Inhaling and exhaling. Lovely. Last time you were here, Jane had spent days preparing Morehouse for the return of her cousins. St. John was the first to inspect it, and Jane was disappointed to see he did not seem moved either way. Diana and Mary were in excellent spirits and expressed their gratitude to Jane in spades. They spent the next few days happily in each other's company, without St. John, who took himself away often so as not to participate. At dinner one evening, he revealed that Rosamond Oliver was engaged to be married. Jane questioned him to see if he was sad about the affair, but he seemed unaffected. Sometime later, Jane agreed to give up learning German and to learn Hindustani with St. John in order to assist him in his studies. The language was to help him when he visited India on his mission. In the meantime, she wrote to Thornfield Hall to obtain word of Mr. Rochester. She had been waiting for a response, but none had arrived. While feeling particularly emotional about this one day, St. John asked her to take a walk with him. When they were a distance from the house, he asked Jane if she would marry him and come with him to India. And so we pick back up tonight, with St. John awaiting Jane's response to his proposal. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 34 continued. Oh, St. John, I cried, have some mercy. 
I appealed to one who, in the discharge of what he believed his duty, knew neither mercy nor remorse. He continued, God and nature intended you for a missionary's wife. It is not personal, but mental endowments they have given you. You are formed for labor, not for love. A missionary's wife you must, shall be. You shall be mine. I claim you, not for my pleasure, but for my sovereign service. I am not fit for it. I have no vocation, I said. He had calculated on these first objections. He was not irritated by them. Indeed, as he leaned his back against the crag behind him, folded his arms on his chest, and fixed his countenance, I saw he was prepared for a long and trying opposition, and had taken in a stock of patience to last him to its close. Resolved, however, that the close should be conquest for him. Humility, Jane, said he, is the groundwork of Christian virtues. You say right that you are not fit for the work. Who is it fit for? Or who, that ever was truly called, believed himself worthy of the summons? I, for instance, am but dust and ashes. With St. Paul, I acknowledge myself the chiefest of sinners. But I do not suffer this sense of my personal vileness to daunt me. I know my leader, but he is just as well as mighty. And while he has chosen a feeble instrument to perform a great task, he will, from the boundless stores of his providence, supply the inadequacy of the means to the end. Think like me, Jane. Trust like me. It is the rock of ages I ask you to lean on. Do not doubt that it will bear the weight of your human weakness." do not understand a missionary's life. I have never studied missionary labors. There, I, humble as I am, can give you the aid you want. I can set your task from hour to hour, stand by you always, help you from moment to moment. This I could do in the beginning. Soon, for I know your powers, would be as strong and apt as myself, and would not require my help. But my powers, where are they for this undertaking? I do not feel them. Nothing speaks or stirs in me while you talk. I am sensible of no light kindling, no life quickening, no voice counselling or cheering. I wish I could make you see how much my mind is at this moment like a rayless dungeon, with one shrinking fear fettered in its depths, fear of being persuaded by you to attempt what I cannot accomplish. I have an answer for you. Hear it. I have watched you ever since we first met. I have made you my study for ten months. I have proved you in that time by sundry tests. And what have I seen and elicited? 
In the village school, I found you could perform well, punctually, uprightly, labor uncongenial to your habits and inclinations. I saw you could perform it with capacity and tact. You could win while you controlled. In the calm with which you learned, you had become suddenly rich. Read a mind clear of the vice of Damas. Lucra had no undue power over you. In the resolute readiness with which you cut your wealth into four shares, keeping but one to yourself and relinquishing the three others to the claim of abstract justice, I recognized a soul that reveled in the flame and excitement of sacrifice and the tractability with which, at my wish, you forsook a study in which you were interested and adopted another because it interested me. In the untiring assiduity with which you have since persevered in it, in the unflagging energy and unshaken temper with which you have met its difficulties, I acknowledge the complement of the qualities I seek. Jane, you are docile, diligent, disinterested, faithful, constant, and courageous very gentle and very heroic. Cease to mistrust yourself. I can trust you unreservedly. As a conductress of Indian schools and a helper amongst women, your assistance will be to me invaluable. My iron shroud contracted round me. Persuasion advanced with slow, sure steps. Shut my eyes as I would, these last words of his succeeded in making the way which had seemed blocked up comparatively clear. My work, which had appeared so vague, so hopelessly diffuse, condensed itself as he proceeded and assumed a definite form under his shaping hand. He waited for an answer. I demanded a quarter of an hour to think before I again hazarded a reply. Very willingly, he rejoined, and rising, he strode a little distance up the pass, threw himself down on a swell of heath, and there lay still. I can do what he wants me to do. I am forced to see and acknowledge that, I meditated, that is, if life be spared me. I feel mine is not the existence to be long protracted under an Indian sun. What then? He does not care for that. When my time came to die, he would resign me, in all serenity and sanctity, to the God who gave me. The case is very plain before me. In leaving England, I should leave a loved but empty land. Mr. Rochester is not there, and if he were, what is? What can that ever be to me? My business is to live without him now, 
Nothing so absurd, so weak as to drag on from day to day as if I were waiting some impossible change in circumstances which might reunite me to him. Of course, as St. John once said, I must seek another interest in life to replace the one lost. It is not the occupation he now offers me, truly the most glorious man can adopt or God can assign? Is it not, by its noble cares and sublime results, the one best calculated to fill the void left by uptorn affections and demolished hopes? I believe I must say yes, and yet I shudder. Alas, if I join St. John, I abandon half of myself. If I go to India, I go to premature death. And how will the interval between leaving England for India and India for the grave be filled? Oh, I know well. That too is very clear to my vision. By straining to satisfy St. John, Till my sinews ache, I shall satisfy him to the finest central point and farthest outward circle of his expectations. If I do go with him, if I do make the sacrifice he urges, I will make it absolutely. I will throw all on the altar, heart, vitals, the entire victim. He will never love me, but he shall approve me. I will show him energies he has not yet seen, resources he has never suspected. Yes, I can work as hard as he can, and with as little grudging. Consent, then, to his demand is possible, but for one item, one dreadful item that he asks me to be his wife and he has no more of a husband's heart for me than that frowning giant of a rock down which the stream is foaming in yonder gorge he prizes me as a soldier would a good weapon and that is all unmarried to him this would never grieve me but can I let him complete his calculations coolly put into practice his plans, go through the wedding ceremony? Can I receive from him the bridal ring, endure all the forms of love, which I doubt not he would scrupulously observe, and know that the spirit was quite absent? Can I bear the consciousness that every endearment he bestows is a sacrifice made on principle? No, such a martyrdom would be monstrous. I will never undergo it. As his sister, I might accompany him, not as his wife. I will tell him so. I looked towards the knoll. There he lay, still as a prostrate column, his face turned to me, his eye beaming, watchful and keen. He started to his feet and approached me. 
I am ready to go to India if I may go free, I said. Your answer requires a commentary, he said. It is not clear. You have hitherto been my adopted brother. I, your adopted sister. Let us continue as such. You and I had better not marry. He shook his head. Adopted fraternity will not do in this case. If you were my real sister, it would be different. I should take you and seek no wife. But as it is, either our union must be consecrated and sealed by marriage, or it cannot exist. Practical obstacles oppose themselves to any other plan. Do not see it, Jane. Consider a moment. Your strong sense will guide you. I did consider, and still my sense, such as it was, distracted me only to the fact that we did not love each other as man and wife should, and therefore it inferred we ought not to marry. I said so. St. John, I retorted, I regard you as a brother, you, me, as a sister, so let us continue. We cannot, we cannot, he answered with short, sharp determination. It would not do. You've said you will go with me to India. Remember, you have said that. Conditionally, I replied. Well, well. To the main point, the departure with me from England, the cooperation with me in my future labours, you do not object. You have already as good as put your hand to the plough, You are too consistent to withdraw it. You have but one end to keep in view. How the work you have undertaken can best be done. Simplify your complicated interests, feelings, thoughts, wishes, aims. Merge all considerations in one purpose. That of fulfilling with effect, with power, the mission of your great master. To do so, you must have a coadjutor, not a brother. That is a loose tie, but a husband. I, too, do not want a sister. A sister might any day be taken from me. I want a wife, the sole help me I can influence efficiently in life and retain absolutely till death. I shuddered as he spoke. I felt his influence in my marrow, his hold on my limbs. Seek one elsewhere than in me, St. John. Seek one fitted to you. One fitted to my purpose, you mean. Fitted to my vocation. Again, I tell you, it is not the insignificant, private individual, the mere man with the man's selfish senses I wish to mate. It is the missionary. And I will give the missionary my energies. It is all he wants, but not myself. That would only be adding the husk and shell to the kernel. For them he has no use. I retain them. You cannot. You ought not. Do you think God will be satisfied with half an oblation? 
will he accept a mutilated sacrifice? It is the cause of God I advocate. It is under his standard I enlist you. I cannot accept on his behalf a divided allegiance. It must be entire. Oh, I will give my heart to God, I said. You do not want it. I will not swear, reader, that there was not something of repressed sarcasm, both in the tone in which I uttered this sentence and in the feeling that accompanied it. I had silently feared St. John till now, because I had not understood him. He had held me in awe, because he had held me in doubt. How much of him was saint? How much mortal? I could not heretofore tell, but revelations were being made in his conference. The analysis of his nature was proceeding before my eyes. I saw his fallibilities, comprehended them. I understood that, sitting there where I did, on the bank of heath, with the handsome form before me, I sat at the feet of a man erring as I. The veil fell from his hardness and disposition. Having felt in him the presence of these qualities, I felt his imperfection and took courage. I was with an equal, one whom I might argue, one whom, if I saw good, I might resist. He was silent after I had uttered the last sentence, and I presently risked an upward glance at his countenance. His eye, bent on me, expressed at once stern surprise and keen inquiry. Is she sarcastic and sarcastic to me, it seemed to say? What does this signify? Don't let us forget this is a solemn matter, he said ere long, one of which we may neither think nor talk lightly without sin. I trust, Jane, you are in earnest when you say you will serve your heart to God. It is all I want. Once wrench your heart from man and fix it on your maker, the advancement of that maker's spiritual kingdom on earth will be your chief delight and endeavor. You'll be ready to do at once whatever furthers that end. You will see what impetus would be given to your efforts and mine by our physical and mental union in marriage. The only union that gives a character of permanent conformity to the destinies and deigns of human beings, and passing over all minor caprices, all trivial difficulties and delicacies of feeling, all scruple about the degree kind, strength, or tenderness of more personal inclination, you will hasten to enter into that union at once. Shall I? I said briefly. I looked at his features, beautiful in their harmony, strangely formidable in their still severity, at his brow, commanding but not open, his eyes, bright and deep, 
and searching but never soft at his tall, imposing figure and fancied myself in idea his wife. It would never do. As his curate, his comrade, all would be right. I would cross oceans with him in that capacity, toil under eastern suns, in Asian deserts with him in that office, admire and emulate his courage and devotion and vigor, accommodate quietly to his masterhood, smile undisturbed at his eradicable ambition, discriminate the Christian from the man, profoundly esteem the one and freely forgive the other. I should suffer often, no doubt, attached to him only in this capacity. My body would be under rather a stringent yoke, but my heart and mind would be free. I should still have my unblighted self to turn to, my natural feelings with which to communicate in moments of loneliness. There would be recesses in my mind which would only be mine, to which he never came, and sentiments growing there fresh and sheltered which his austerity could never blight, nor his measured warrior march trample down. But as his wife, at his side always and always restrained and always checked, forced to keep the fire of my nature continually low, to compel it to burn inwardly and never utter a cry, though the imprisoned flame consumed vital after vital This would be unendurable. St. John, I said when I had got so far in my meditation. Well, he answered icily. I repeat, I freely consent to go with you as your fellow missionary, but not as your wife. I cannot marry you and become part of you. A part of me you must become he answered steadily. Otherwise the whole bargain is void. How can I, a man not yet thirty, take out with me to India a girl of nineteen unless she be married to me? How can we be forever together, sometimes in solitudes and unwed? Very well, I said shortly. Under the circumstances, quite as well as if I were either your real sister or a man and a clergyman like yourself. It is known that you are not my sister. I cannot introduce you as such. To attempt it would be to fasten injurious suspicions on us both. And for the rest, though you have a man's vigorous brain, you have a woman's heart and it would not do. It would do, I affirmed with some disdain. Perfectly well. I have a woman's heart, but not where you are concerned. For you, I have only a comrade's constancy, a fellow soldier's frankness, fidelity, fraternity, if you like, 
the neophyte's respect and submission to his hierophant. Nothing more. Don't fear. It is what I want, he said, speaking to himself. It's just what I want. There are obstacles in the way. They must be hewn down, Jane. You would not repent marrying me. Be certain of that. We must be married. I repeat it, there is no other way. And undoubtedly enough, love would follow upon marriage to render the union right, even in your eyes. I scorn your idea of love, I could not help saying, as I rose up and stood before him, leaning my back against the rock. I scorn the counterfeit sentiment you offer. Yes, St. John, and I scorn you when you offer it. He looked at me fixedly, compressing his well-cut lips while he did so. Whether he was incensed or surprised or what, it was not easy to tell. He could command his countenance thoroughly. I scarcely expected to hear that expression from you, he said. Think I have done and uttered nothing to deserve scorn. I was touched by his gentle tone and overawed by his high, calm mien. Forgive me the words, St. John, but it is your own fault that I have been roused to speak so unguardedly. You have introduced a topic on which our natures are at variance, a topic we should never discuss. The very name of love is an apple of discord between us. If the reality were required, what should we do? How should we feel? My dear cousin, abandon your scheme of marriage. Forget it. No, said he. It is a long-cherished scheme, and the only one which can secure my great end I shall urge you no further at present. Tomorrow I leave home for Cambridge. I have many friends there whom I should wish to say farewell. I shall be absent a fortnight. Take that space of time to consider my offer. Do not forget that if you reject it, it is not me you deny, but God. Through my means, he opens to you a noble career. As my wife only can you enter upon it. Refuse to be my wife, and you limit yourself forever to a track of selfish ease and barren obscurity. Tremble lest in that case you should be numbered with those who have denied the faith and who are now worse than infidels. He had done. Turning from me, he once more looked to river, looked to hill. But this time his feelings were all pent in his heart. I was not worthy to hear them uttered. As I walked by his side homeward, I read well in his iron silence all he felt towards me. The disappointment of an austere and despotic nature has not met resistance where it expected submission, disapprobation of a cool, inflexible judgment, 
which he has detected in another feelings and views in which it has no power to sympathize. In short, as a man, he would have wished to coerce me into obedience. It was only as a sincere Christian he bore it so plainly with my perversity and allowed so long a space for reflection and repentance. That night, after he had kissed his sisters, he thought it proper to forget even to shake hands with me, but he left the room in silence. I, who though I had no love, had much friendship for him, was hurt by the marked omission. So much hurt that tears started to my eyes. I see you and St. John have been quarreling, Jane, said Diana, during your walk on the moor. But go after him. He is now lingering in the passage expecting you. He will make it up. I have not much pride under such circumstances. I would always rather be happy than dignified, and I ran after him. He stood at the foot of the stairs. Good night, St. John, said I. Good night, Jane, he replied calmly. Then shake hands, I added. What a cold, loose touch he impressed on my fingers. He was deeply displeased with what had occurred that day. Cordiality would not warm, nor tears move him. No happy reconciliation was to be had with him. No cheering smile or generous word. But still, the Christian was patient and placid. And when I asked him if he forgave me, he answered that he was not in the habit of cherishing the remembrance of vexation, that he had nothing to forgive, not having been offended. And with that answer, he left me. I would much rather he had knocked me down. Chapter 35 He did not leave for Cambridge the next day, as he had said he would. He deferred his departure a whole week, and during that time, he made me feel what severe punishment a good, yet stern, a conscientious yet implacable man can inflict on one who has offended him. Without one overt act of hostility, one upbraiding word, he contrived to impress me momentarily with the conviction that I was put beyond the pale of his favour. Not that St. John harboured a spirit of unchristian vindictiveness, not that he would have injured a hair on my head if it had been fully in his power to do so. Both by nature and principle, he was superior to the mean gratification of vengeance. He had forgiven me for saying I scorned him and his love, but he had not forgotten the words, and as long as he and I lived, he never would forget them. I saw by his look when he turned to me that 
they were always written on the air between me and him. Whenever I spoke, they sounded in my voice to his ear, and their echo toned every answer he gave me. He did not abstain from conversing with me. He even called on me as usual each morning to join him at his desk, and I fear the corrupt man within him had a pleasure unimparted to and unshared by the pure Christian, in invincing with what skill he could while acting and speaking apparently just as usual, extract from every deed and every phrase the spirit of interest and approval which had formerly communicated a certain austere charm to his language and manner. To me, he was in reality become no longer flesh, but marble. His eye was a cold, bright, blue gem. His tongue was a speaking instrument, nothing more. All this was torture to me, refined, lingering torture. I kept up a slow fire of indignation and a trembling trouble of grief which harassed and crushed me altogether. I felt how, if I were his wife, this good man, pure as the deep sunless source, could soon kill me without drawing from my veins a single drop of blood or receiving on his own crystal conscience the faintest stain of crime. Especially I felt this when I made my attempt to propitiate him. No Ruth met my Ruth. He experienced no suffering from estrangement, no yearning after reconciliation, and though more than once my fast-falling tears blistered the page over which we both bent, they produced no more effect on him than if his heart had been really a matter of stone or metal. To his sisters, meantime, he was somewhat kinder than usual, as if afraid that mere coldness would not sufficiently convince me how completely I was banished and banned, he added the force of contrast, and this I am sure he did not by malice, but on principle. The night before he left home, happening to see him walking in the garden about sunset, and remembering, as I looked at him, that this man, alienated as he now was, had once saved my life, and that we were near relations, I was moved to make a last attempt to regain his friendship. I went out and approached him as he stood leaning over the little gate. I spoke to the point at once. St. John, I am unhappy because you are still angry with me. Let us be friends. I hope we are friends was the unmoved reply while he still watched the rising of the moon 
that she had been contemplating as I approached. No, St. John, we are not friends as we were. You know that. Are we not? That is wrong. For my part, I wish you no ill and all good. I believe you, St. John, for I am now sure you are incapable of wishing anyone ill. But as I am your kinswoman, I should desire somewhat more of affection than that sort of general philanthropy you extend to mere strangers. Of course, he said, your wish is reasonable, though I'm far from regarding you as a stranger. This, spoken in a cool, tranquil tone, was mortifying and baffling enough. Had I attended to the suggestions of pride and ire, I should immediately have left him. But something worked within me more strongly than those feelings could. I deeply venerated my cousin's talent and principle. His friendship was of value to me. To lose it tried me severely. I would not so soon relinquish the attempt to reconquer it. Must we part this way, St. John? And when you go to India, will you leave me so, without a kinder word than you have yet spoken? He now turned quite from the moon and faced me. When I go to India, Jane, will I leave you? What? Do not go to India? You said I could not unless I married you. And you will not marry me. You adhere to that resolution. Reader, do you know as I do what terror these cold people can put into the ice of their questions? How much the fall of the avalanche is their anger, or the breaking up of the frozen sea in their displeasure? No, St. John, I will not marry you. I adhere to my resolution. The avalanche had shaken and slid a little forward, but it did not yet crash down. Once more, why this refusal? He asked. Formally, I answered, because you did not love me. Now I reply, because you almost hate me. If I were to marry you, you would kill me. You are killing me now. His lips and cheeks turned white, quite white. I should kill you. I am killing you. Your words are such as ought not to be used. Violent, unfeminine, and untrue. They betray an unfortunate state of mind. They merit severe reproof. They would seem inexcusable. That is the duty of man to forgive his fellow, even until seventy and seven times. I had finished the business now while earnestly wishing to erase from his mind the trace of my former offence, I had stamped on that tenacious surface another and far deeper impression. I had burnt it in. How he will indeed hate me, 
I said. It is useless to attempt to conciliate you. I see I have made an eternal enemy of you. A fresh wrong did these words inflict. The words because they touched on the truth. That bloodless lip quivered to a temporary spasm. I knew the steely ire I had wetted. I was heart-wrung. You utterly misinterpret my words, I said at once, seizing his hand. I have no intention to grieve or pain you. Indeed, I have not. Most bitterly, he smiled. Most decidedly, he withdrew his hand from mine. And now you recall your promise? Will not go to India at all, I presume? Said he, after a considerable pause. Yes, I will, as your assistant, I answered. A very long silence succeeded. What struggle there was in him between nature and grace in this interval I cannot tell. Only singular gleams scintillated in his eyes, and strange shadows passed over his face. He spoke at last. I before proved to you the absurdity of a single woman of your age proposing to accompany abroad a single man of mine. I proved it to you in such terms as, I should have thought, would have prevented your ever again alluding to the plan. That you have done so, I regret for your sake. I interrupted him. Anything like a tangible reproach gave me courage at once. Keep to common sense, St. John. You're verging on nonsense. You pretend to be shocked by what I have said. You're not really shocked, for with your superior mind, you cannot be either so dull or so conceited as to misunderstand my meaning. I say again, I will be your curate if you like, but never your wife. Again he turned lividly pale, but as before, controlled his passion perfectly. He answered emphatically, but calmly, a female curate who is not my wife would never suit me. With me, then, it seems you cannot go. But if you are sincere in your offer, I will, while in town, speak to a married missionary whose wife needs a coadjutor. Your own fortune will make you independent of the society's aid, and thus you may still be spared the dishonor of breaking your promise and deserting the band you engaged to join. Now I had never, as the reader knows, either given any formal promise or entered into any engagement, and this language was all much too hard and much too despotic for the occasion. I replied, There is no dishonor, no breach of promise, no desertion in the case. I'm not under the slightest obligation to go to India, especially with strangers. With you, I would have ventured much, because I admire, 
confide in. And as a sister, I love you. But I'm convinced that, go when and with whom I would, I should not live long in that climate. Ah, you are afraid of yourself, he said, curling his lip. I am. God did not give me my life to throw away. Moreover, before I definitively resolve on quitting England, I will know for certain whether I cannot be of greater use by remaining in it than by leaving it. What do you mean? It would be fruitless to attempt to explain, but there is one point on which I have long endured painful doubt and can go nowhere till by some means that doubt is removed. I know where your heart turns and to what it clings. The interest you cherish is lawless and unconsecrated. Long since you ought to have crushed it, now you should blush to allude to it. You think of Mr. Rochester. It was true. I confessed it by silence. You're going to seek Mr. Rochester? He asked. I must find out what has become of him. It remains for me then, he said, to remember you in my prayers and to entreat God for you in all earnestness that you may not indeed become a castaway. I thought I recognized in you one of the chosen, but God sees not as a man sees. His will be done. He opened the gate, passed through it, and stayed away down the glen. He was soon out of sight.